In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. He should have realized that something was eventually going to come out of the UFO, because if you've got the Greys curious about you, as I found out, they do show up eventually, and not every time, but they will show up from time to time. So he gets a gun and the whole works, same thing I did, only there was a difference between what happened afterwards, and in his case, it ended very tragically. Check out the huge selection of Strange Planet merchandise in my online shop. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on Shop in the menu or find the link in the episode notes for this podcast. At my Strange Planet shop, you'll find unique men's, women's, unisex t-shirts and athletic shirts, leggings, tote bags, mugs, neck gaiters, and stickers and more. All emblazoned with amazing artwork designed exclusively for my Strange Planet shop by artist illustrator Rick Forgus. If you're a fan of Strange Planet, why not show it off? Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on shop or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link. It's a strange planet. Dress for it. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Whitley Strieber is here, the author of Communion, which of course was made into a major motion picture starring uh, Christopher Walken, who played the role of Whitley Strieber in this true story. Uh, the Coming Global Superstorm, of course, co-authored by Art Bell, which was made into another blockbuster, The Day After Tomorrow. His new book is A New World. Victor Vigiani, executive director of Zeland News Network, stays with us as well. Victor, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, uh, th- thanks, Richard. Um, Whitley, I'd like to address something that I, uh, you spoke about. Uh, I forget exactly where you alluded to it in either one of your books. You, you spoke about how these beings, actually, it's, it's a two-pronged question. Um, uh, how many of these beings are there, do you figure? And then the, the other, the addendum to the question is, you alluded to how these beings uh, recognize a glow, uh, our our internal attachment to who we are as beings, 
And once they recognize this so-called glow, that attachment begins almost automatically. And they recognize that in you. Could you talk to us about what that glow is? Yeah, sure. I, first, I don't remember speculating about how many of them there might be. Mm-hmm. I probably have somewhere. I mean, every, every conceivable question I think I've been asked over the years. Yeah, the that's a tough would one. Be now, I have no idea. But with regard to the glow, that's another story. I can I can certainly speak to that. Way back when, I had a number of, not a number, but one particularly intense incident of a dialogue with one or more of them. And this was not a physical dialogue, but it was so spontaneous that it was almost like listening to someone speaking to me over the phone. It was more than what you would call channeling or anything like that. And I asked at one point why they had come here. The answer was, we saw a glow. And I thought, oh, that must mean the glow of cities and so forth. It took me many years to understand that was not the glow, or not the only glow. There's another glow. And that is that back in 1970, I started involved, being involved with the Gurdjieff Foundation. Uh, G.I. Gurdjieff was an Armenian philosopher and spiritual experimenter, I guess would be the best way to call it, who developed a system of inner work that enables us to wake up much more to the world around us than we normally are, to the point where you begin to realize as you do this that actually you are asleep most of the time. You're a waking sleep, in a wake state of waking sleep. And there's another much more vivid state of life that you can live in, at least in glimpses. And the way you do that is that you create what Mr. Gurdjieff called the double arrow, which is the attention looks inward and outward at the same time. And in order to develop this, you do something called the sensing exercise, which takes the attention and you place it on your body so that you are you are being attentive to your physical sensations as well as to what's going on in your mind. Because normally the attention is kind of riding on the body and it's inside the mind. And it turns out that when you do this, it changes this I did not know, and I don't think Mr. Khajiv did either, although he may have. It changes the way they see you. They can see this as a glow. In other words, what they were seeing was when I was out in that cabin with my wife alone and my little boy, I would do this sensing exercise every night at 11. And they would see this little glow out there in the woods, and they became curious and investigated. That's what I think happened. And I think also that it's obvious from my second hypnosis session with Donald Klein that they had been in my life when I was a child, and I had just, they'd withdrawn eventually, and I had just forgotten completely about them. So it was for them, a renewal of a relationship. And for me, of course, it was the start of something entirely new. And what has become, at the time it happened, started, I was felt cursed. But now it has turned into, I have turned into something so very different from what I was then. I would never, I am consider myself incredibly lucky to have had them take an interest in me and stay with me in my life the way they have. Whitley, you talk about this communication gap and, and why they aren't more present in our lives. And you explain this in part by how they perceive reality. They have a different system of perceiving reality than we do. Can you drill down on that a little bit, yeah. the output versus input strategy? Yeah, there's two entirely different strategies of being, of perceiving reality, really. We look at the world around us, and we see it as as it comes into us. But they look very differently. They see the world, the external world, as a kind of abstraction, which to us is, it's a reality. You know, my wife, I think she 
during her lifetime, she expressed this beautifully, and it, it's not really discussed so well in A New World as it could have been, because she called them inward beings. And they, they look at reality from the inside looking out. We look at it looking at the outside of it. So the result is that they see the world in a completely different way than we do. And I have worried, frankly, that maybe they don't understand what's going on with us as well as they should. I'm just not sure. Because you so would we, think we would see the whole apple and they see the, what, the underlying mathematics see, of the yeah, apple? Exactly. They see, like, we see an apple as an apple. They see the mathematics underlying the apple. There's a wonderful book called Our Mathematical Universe, which is a book by a physicist who postulates that there are mathematical formula underlying reality that must have been there before reality. My wife would have agreed with him. His name is Max Tegmark. His, my wife would have agreed with him wholeheartedly because she believed this totally, that there had to have been, in other words, when the Big Bang occurred, the universe formed for a reason. It obeys mathematical laws, and those laws had to exist before it did. And they see the universe in the context of that math. We see it in the context of the output of that math. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's a totally, to, totally different ways of seeing. You add to that their, their uh, uh, nesting structure of their of their mind and boy i mean we are radically different from them there's a huge gulf between us well do you do and, you think Whitley, that do you think that they completely understand us or do you think that they're completely confused by us i think it's a mixture i think that they are confused by us i know they have been frequently confused by me but ann used to say well Everyone's confused by you. You're, <laughs> of course, they're confused <laughs> by you. And, and uh, I think they have points of startling insight. I think they know we are in trouble, that we are liable to go extinct. I think I'm quite sure they know that. But I'm not so sure that they know and can understand what they might do to help us because they, 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 have, they have lavished me with information and relationship. And I've been able to write books like A New World and Afterlife Revolution that really would, if they, were, if they had a large audience, they would, uh, they, they would be very foundational in terms of change. So I have understood them. But the problem is there's a gap now in that if you, like the New York Times, for example, might publish Leslie Keene's articles, but they would never disdain to review my books. Uh, course, I yeah. know the people at TTSA very well, most of them who are in that, but they won't interview on Dreamland because they don't want to get in, they don't want to mix what they're trying to do up with the whole abduction phenomenon, which is a can of worms to them. And I can't blame them. I mean, I you know they're trying to they're trying to get the media and the and the scientific community to, to a point where there can be more focus on this on a broader scale. And they'll never do it if they get hooked up with somebody like me. So of course, I mean, we're friends. Well, well I can understand of course. the position. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a very intense conversation with Luis Elizondo uh, last week. And we went through a number of scenarios, and you bring up a very good point. I, and I, I brought up the the idea of the abduction phenomenon and went through and just tried to figure out where the To the Stars Academy was on that issue. And I'll tell you something, uh, he danced around that issue pretty, pretty, pretty carefully. I don't know what they think about what you're doing. And the reality that you're pointing to, I think, is, is totally different than the political direction that they're going in. So there's a real a dissonance there. Well, there is. But they, you know, if unless we get this to the point, this whole thing, not just the abduction phenomenon, but the whole thing to the point where the broad scientific community 
has cultural permission to study it, we're not going to get anywhere. And we can't, you can't, you have to start smaller than the abduction phenomenon. You have to start with the UAPs, not calling them UFOs, was as uh, Chris Mel- Mel- Mellon correctly points out, mm-hmm. UFO already says unidentified flying object. But how do we know it's an object? UAP says unknown, a, a, a phenomenon, unknown aerial phenomenon, an unidentified aerial phenomenon. And that's actually what it is. It's more accurate. But unless we get to the point where, like, for example, I don't believe to this day the National Science Foundation will allow foundational granting in this study area at all. And we got to get past where we are. And we're not going to get past it if people like him and Hal Pudoff and Louis Elizondo and the others in TTSA have got to defend a belief in abductions. It's just not ready yet. So I don't with, disagree yeah. with them at all, but I, they know that my door is open, that I'm, I'm always ready, when they're ready, to start a dialogue. And there will with, be, with, hopefully, a time when that happens. Whitley, you, you talk about the three broad reasons for the, the secrecy, the, the first two being military. They don't want a, us to panic, I guess, because they can't do anything about them. Then there's the weaponizing of the ET technology by the world powers. But then you cite a third one. You say the visitors themselves compel a degree of secrecy. They do it by cultural and social manipulation, and they're really good at it, you say. Explain. What do you mean by that? This is their thing. They control it, I think, much more than we do. And they have taught me about the cultural background and the cultural foreground and they told me years and years ago that I would move into the cultural background and stay there, which is where I am now. You don't see me on 60 Minutes, for example, but you see me in this incredibly rich background where you live, frankly, and, and all of us do, where things are really change, change, real change happens. And eventually it boils over into the cultural foreground, but not now, not right now, and maybe not even in my lifetime. But... In any case, they, I think, have an exquisitely capable ability to understand our culture. And they do not want to do something which is called cultural colonization. I that's not necessarily their term. It's my term. And it's a, you'll find it, uh, I suppose it's an anthropological term of some extent. In any case, what this is, is like in the 19th century when the British would show up on an island where the people were living basically still in the Stone Age, and suddenly here were these people with these wonderful cookpots and knives and cloth and all kinds of wonderful stuff. They forget their gods, forget their religions, forget their pots and their woven baskets. They wanted that stuff. And their culture just kind of stopped because they completely became focused on what this higher technology had. But was their culture somehow less? The answer is no. It was just different. But they abandoned it anyway. Or in the case of the Native Americans, their culture was torn out of their lives by us. And their children were all put in schools, and they were punished for, for even speaking their native languages for many generations. Yeah. Now they're trying to restore their cultures. But the, these visitors do not want to do that to us, and they know that the slightest general appearance will immediately refocus our whole culture, basically, on their pots and pans and cell phones. And we'll just forget about our own innovation and go for whatever we can get from them. And they don't want that to happen. And there was an article in the magazine Science in 1997, April issue, by uh, D.B.H. Kuyper and Mark Morris, which outlined this, and I don't have any idea if either one of these men knows a thing about 
the, the abduction phenomenon uh, or UFOs or anything. It's not referred to in the article. It's totally speculative. That aliens coming here would have only one reason for doing so, and that would be innovation, to find something new. And therefore, they would necessarily hide from us for the reasons I've just been discussing. So right now, the visitors are, I think they're in a quandary. I think they know that we are headed down a very dangerous path, and it could lead very easily lead to our extinction. At the, on the one hand, on the other hand, they also know that their reason for being here is to find something new by watching us discover the universe. And if they appear, then their reason for being here is gone. So they're between, caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. If they continue to hide, we're liable to go extinct, and their reason for being here is ruined. If they don't hide, then despite their best efforts, we become culturally colonized, and their reason for being here is ruined. So I think it's driving them kind of crazy. I don't think they can figure it out, figure out how to get out of that conundrum. And, and on top of everything else, yeah. there's this yeah. communication gap. They're thinking in fractals, and, and we're still using primitive language. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm not so sure our languages, for us, it's, our languages, some of them are not primitive at all. But in terms of the way they think, yeah. Uh, Whitley, at one point, one of these visitors communicated to you in some way. They said, we arrange atoms. What do you, what do you suppose that that means? What are the implications? They communicated that years and years ago to another close encounter witness. Ah. But I thought, and I, at the time, I had no idea what it meant. But over the years, it has become clear what it means. It means that they can really do make anything into anything else. Because if you can manipulate the strong force, which is the force that... Uh, holds uh, atoms together, you can do anything. You can make anything into anything. And um, then you look forward in time to the materials that have been analyzed. There's uh, some materials that have been analyzed, and it appears that they have um, isotopic ratios that are not just not from Earth, but not from this universe at all. So are they from a, the materials from a parallel universe, in which case, why are they stable in this one? And if not, were they constructed, put together in, by somebody who could literally rearrange atoms? And what the energy, as we understand it, the energy that would be necessary to do that is immense. And the reason for doing it, we don't understand. We don't understand why you would want to or need to. Well, you're very careful to not to refer to these entities as aliens or ETs, just visitors, but you also believe there is perhaps a greater presence behind them, something that, that might play an even larger role in our development than, than they have. What do you mean by this? And I think you call it the presence. Yeah, the presence, the consciousness is a field. It is not simply between our ears. And this is something that the scientific community will very slowly, it's going to get to this, that it is consciousness is larger than we are. And in fact, as soon as you, as soon as you get to the point where you realize that consciousness doesn't end with the skull, you, it, it, it's not, it, it just in the brain, you realize that, well, it, then where does it end? And the answer is maybe it doesn't end. Maybe it is incredibly ancient, and maybe what we consider reality is more like a wave front moving forward into the future and turning the future into the present. I want to ask the visitors about time travel. I was always fascinated by that. And 
the answer was fascinating. It was that the future is like water, and the present is like something that will freeze the water because all of these decisions that are being made in the, in the present in a sort of wave moving forward into the future. And behind this wave, it's like ice. And mostly you can't change the past. But there are little bubbles here and there. And they like to go into those little bubbles and see the changes that they can manage to make. And Annie used to say, well, maybe that means they're us from the future and we're in one of those little bubbles in the past, in their past. And they're trying to repair their present by changing our reality, which is their past. So I'm not, I'm not sure where this whole timeline thing kind of is a context for you, uh, Whitley. Uh, here's an image for you, and I'll try to draw it as clearly as I can. If you look at the, if you look at time as a fuse, you know you you light a fuse, and it moves forward. And at some point, that fuse um, kind of melds with the future and the past. And when the future melds with the present, you get a confluence of ideas or a confluence of of, of connection where the, the where the present, you know, interacts with the future and they overlap and is there a point at which these beings somehow understand where that ignition point is and that they can either control the future or see the future or direct us towards where we might go to uh, enable us to understand what, what our future is I don't think they can see the future all that clearly As really? they said okay. to me it was it, the future is like water. That means that it, there are a lot of possibilities. I think they see the possibilities very clearly, and I think our dead see the possibilities more clearly than we do, too. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean they see the definite, of definite future timeline, because I don't think there is mm-hmm. one. Yeah, th- that would be like a godlike uh, possibility, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, if, if, if there's predestination, then, you know, basically I resign. I don't care anymore. And I don't yeah, think you just, should. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't think there is. Pre- I don't think the universe would. Be, it would be pointless if there was predestination. Nobody who really understood the universe would be having any fun at all if there was predestination. There would be. They would be stone cold, bored, and trapped. The universe would be a huge trap, and mm. I don't have the impression that they feel trapped. I, I, in that way, I think that they do feel that they know so much, they know essentially everything, at least some of them do, and that is a trap for them, and they like, they like, like, sharing my mind with me, because to them, it's all pretty much known. I mean, they don't necessarily know the future precisely, but they know it it's not as much of a secret to them as it is to, to us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my whole future, every moment is new to me. I don't think that's the case with them, because I, when I meditate with them, I can feel their attention coming into me, and I, I feel like uh, they, they really want to be in this state of limited knowledge, because then they can taste a type of wonder that has long since they have long since lost in their own minds. Right. Do you think they could be conscious machines? I think some of them may be. You know, there was a fascinating man, John von Neumann, who was in his day considered the smartest man in the world, and he speculated about this endlessly and was supposedly a member of the Majestic Twelve, but I don't know much about that. I know a little bit about it, probably a little more than I would say. But in any case, uh, he had a, a concept that was in those days called a von Neumann machine. And it's, it's sort of confused if you look it up on the Internet now. It's not quite what he described. At least I haven't been able to find it. What he described was a, was a machine that would be that would contain a perfect... Uh, image, as it were, of a species that would be sent on a 
trip around the galaxy looking for planets where it could seed that species, planets that were congenial to that species' way of of living and its its uh, its bodies, and it would seed them on the, that planet and then go on to other planets. And he said that over time, of course, it would deteriorate. And when it found a planet like our planet, it might end up in a conundrum where it was a planet it could use, and its programming told it to seed the planet, but the planet was already seeded with someone else, so what to do? And it might be in a state of constant, permanent indecision, and that might not might be why they buzz around us like flies or, or moths around a light and that don't have to actually land, because they don't know what to do. They're not programmed for that. <laughs> um, Fascinating. Some of them, even the most... I've met one of them once who was an immensely rich person emotionally. But there was something about this individual that, in terms of the sounds this, this person made and the way they moved and everything about them. They were more perfect than the most perfect machine you could imagine. This individual made three sounds. Oh, oh, oh. When I did something that disappointed him, her, or it. And those three sounds remain to this day the most emotionally rich and most perfect sounds I have ever heard. They were so perfect that it took me a long time, like maybe more than a year, to be able to enjoy music again because it sounded muddy just because of the perfection. I'd never heard perfection like that before, and I don't think any of us have. So what was I looking at here? Was I looking at a machine that is richly endowed with emotion or with a being that is an, that was a biological entity but had something about it that was so precise that it might as well be a kind of machine? I don't know. But Fascinating. We're gonna we're gonna take a experience. Uh, we'll take another uh, time out, and we'll uh, jump right back into this discussion. Whitley Strieber, the new book is A New World. The website unknowncountry.com, and uh, Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network stays with us as well. Back with more in a moment. It's time to try the tea everyone's talking about. Nothing does what Life Change Tea does. They have no competition. Life Change Tea helps support a healthy body. It tastes great and leaves you feeling refreshed every day. I can't get enough of my pomegranate super tea. I brew two gallons at a time and let it steep in the fridge overnight, enough to last me the entire week. And every morning I have a 16-ounce glass of this amazing GMO non-caffeinated herbal tea. It keeps me regular by providing a gentle cleanse every day. I'm never gassy or bloated, and good health begins with a healthy gut. This pomegranate super tea is not available in any store. You need to go to getthetea.com. Go to getthetea.com. Use the code UNLIMITED, and all your orders ship for free. All of them. It's time to get your tea from getthetea.com. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess you better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Whitley, this book comes with a, with a warning, uh, and that is witness-initiated contact or people seeking out contact uh, with these visitors and and you cite an example I guess a, a, a re, you recount a case from Mutual UFO Network Director of Experiencer Research Kathleen Marden about a gentleman uh, named Matt who became curious about UFOs after seeing one on the, the run or I should say um, UAPs uh, after seeing one on the runway of a small airport he owned and ultimately it ended tragically what, what happened to Matt? 
Well, that's uh, Kathleen Martin's book, Extraterrestrial Contact, contains this story, and I think it's a very important one. Um, what happened was this. He had this little airport, private airport, and he lived in, at the airport, lived in a, in, a, in a room over the hangar. And one night, a UFO appeared at the end of his runway. And he was absolutely fascinated, and he started putting out light um, bars and things in, in indicating an interest. And it came back, and it started to come back a lot. And then one night, he woke up and he heard noises in his hangar. And he went and looked down into the hangar, and there were these, what he regarded as monsters, what we would call the greys, in his hangar. And it terrified him. I mean, you know, what could he have been thinking? Uh, he should have realized that something was eventually going to come out of the UFO, because if you've got the greys curious about you, as I found out, they do show up eventually, and not every time, but they will show up from time to time. So he gets a gun and the whole works, same thing I did. Only there was a difference between what happened afterwards. Um, and in his case, it ended very tragically. What happened was that he was sleeping in bed, and he woke up in the middle of the night, and there was one of them in the, in the room, and he shot it. And it exploded into a thousand little bits. And he didn't collect the little bits which had disappeared shortly after that happened. But there, he was telling his family about this. They were beginning to you know, think in terms of psychiatric help. And then at one point, his mother was with him. And they both saw another universe appear, a parallel universe appear at the end of the runway where they could see things like woolly mammoths walking in a field. So she knew something very weird was going on with her son. And, but after this experience, he began to be haunted very violently by a spirit that apparently was the soul of the entity he had shot. And it was vindictive and furious, and it drove him mad, and he eventually committed suicide and died. Um, so the moral of the story is, yeah, it's fine to want this to happen, but you better expect it to be not all sweetness and light, and because these guys are they're not pretty, and they're, they're aggressive, and they're very weird. And, you know, if you want them in your life and you get a chance like he had or I had, I, I wouldn't think you could get them so easily into your life just by trying. I mean, you might, but that ain't easy. They have to decide they want to come to you, I think. And um, if you, you better be prepared for, first of all, they're not leaving once they arrive. That, that You've got them then. You're married. And... Um, you have to work with them on their terms for the rest of your life. That's my, you've often my, my experience. Yeah, you've often described that, Whitley, uh, as these beings being, you, you use the word dangerous, and, um, yeah. and you have used that. And, and juxtaposed with that, with your intense experiences with them at, at, at a number of other levels, how do you reconcile that quote-unquote dangerousness with the potential or the evidential uh, uh, perspective that they are benevolent. How, how do those two things... Well, I wouldn't call them benevolent. I would call okay. them something that we can use uh, if we handle ourselves and handle our relationship with them correctly. Mm -hmm. But they're predators. We're predators, too. I think that's one of the things that they find that we have in common. Uh, we're very much a predatory species, and mm -hmm. we are symbiotic with other predatory species, dogs and cats is a perfect example. Mm -hmm. We have very comfortable symbiotic relationships with them, but they're predators too. Yeah, but if I they if just, I could push back on that though, if these if these beings or whoever they are, these civilizations, are that far advanced, I mean, we're talking light years ahead of our of our experiential reality, whatever it happens to be, as enlightened as they might be, how could they possibly 
be considered predators. I I, I don't I, uh, I don't where the well, let's, connection let's is look there. At, look at this in another slightly different way. Sure. Yeah. It's easy to say. Well, the more technologically advanced, the more enlightened, and the more benevolent. That doesn't happen to be true if human experience is any measure of it, because the most technologically advanced society that had been developed up to 1940 was German society and German science. And they were not exactly benevolent at all. They were very much the opposite, and they used their technological skills to try to basically steal the world from itself and and killed millions of people into the bargain just because they they were they had gotten into some kind of a paranoid lunatic state um yeah so you know i would not assume that the more technological advanced technologically advanced they are the more ethically advanced they are at all so, Whitley, in the time that remains, one of the things I'd like to talk about or ask you about is how your relationship with the visitors have has evolved since 1985. What is it like? What was it like initially? What is it like now? Are you still frightened by them? No, I'm not frightened by them. I was scared to death, as I said earlier, in the early days, and they were very scary. But, you know, I work with them so intimately. I use my implant in research on my books and I don't find any I I think that there is a a comfortable enough relationship I I give them what they want from me as best I can and I think that there is a there is a mutuality there in in that the I'm I will never be able to stop working with them that's for sure and I would never want to anyway I you know they're working with them is my whole is my life and I you know I I want to do it and I I want to make it I want to make the relationship work better um uh, and uh I, I with not only with me but with everybody because I think we would be greatly enriched by having a relationship with them. They are not angels. They're not particularly benevolent, but they do have a lot of knowledge and a willingness to share at least some of it. That I do know. And um, so there's there are points of, of contact because they also, as I discussed earlier, they have a... They, 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 they enjoy our innocence, let's put it that way, tremendously. Because when they are in an intimate, psychically intimate situation with us, they can share our wonder, uh, something I think they have lost. And my impression is they enjoy doing that a lot. And um, I think there's also a lot to be you have to be really careful because there's a predatory aspect to this that they can you know sharing your wonder is sounds all very wonderful but when they take parts of you parts of your soul perhaps that's not so wonderful and that that line if they start to cross that line then i think is there's you're in trouble and they well, i think they will cross that line if they can just in the same way that um that it, you have a trained tiger, and that tiger, if that tiger is hungry enough, and you don't feed that tiger, he's gonna, he's gonna decide you're his dinner. So you have to remember really? that. I mean, this is—they're not angels, they're not demons. Um, they're you, you, yeah, you, you, Whitley, you, you've talked a lot about the, the way these these beings um, kind of impugn themselves upon you. Has there ever been an instance where uh, you've had an idea about writing a book or writing a short story or whatever it is, and you put that idea out there, and they said, "No, Whitley, no, we don't want you to go there. We want you to write. It, we want you to write it in a different way. Uh, the book that you're considering is not the way we want you to go. Here's the way we want you to go." Uh, it, it, has that ever happened to you? 
sort of, yeah. I'm. I just finished a new book about Jesus, and they were seemed kind of iffy about it at first, and t- sort of indifferent. But um, they didn't. I, I mean, they weren't. They were very excited about a new world. They really wanted that book. But this book's important to me, and and, and I don't think I, I. It might have been something they considered valuable, but they weren't as intense about it by any means. And they didn't say no, and they never would. I can't imagine them refu- refusing me to... I mean, it's not about... You know, free will is very valuable to them. I mean, anyone who is here to experience our innovation and our discoveries is going to be very, very concerned to preserve our free will, obviously. That's, mm-hmm. that's right. why they're here. So, mm-hmm. no, they, they, they wouldn't, but they, they eventually really got into it. And, you know, I... I, I had a marvelous time doing research together because, you know, they can see back into the past very clearly. And I was able to use um, their knowledge, and then what I would do would be to find some something in the past that had happened in in the time of Jesus or in the period after, right after, in a couple of hundred years after, that the book concerns that was very obscure but really important and that nobody had ever noticed before. And then I would work forward in scholarship and find places where there were references to it in our own scholarship and then refocus it in the book. And it just was a a wonderful experience. I couldn't have done it without them, but I don't mention them in the book. And I don't mention, Mm -hmm. I don't think Jesus was an alien or anything like that. But I will say this, he was the most, he was, the, the Shroud of Turin is real. It is, was not successfully debunked in 1988. It is not a forgery. And, you know, you, you chew on that reality, and your whole world's going to change in all kinds of fascinating ways, and that's basically what the book is about. I agree. I think that... Well. That relic is uh, is incredibly faith affirming. One of the central themes of a new world is, you know, what is contact? What sort of change is it bringing to us and our world? So, what what kind of change is it bringing to our world? Well, we we're we're going to have to see that, and we're going to have to hope it's obviously brought a tremendous amount of change already, because I mean, ten years ago even. We were mostly completely indifferent to this, but we are getting closer and closer. Nowadays, people just assume that UAPs are real and that they're an unknown. That wasn't true 10 years ago. And, you know, someone like uh, Louis Elizondo and and, uh, Chris Mellon and then uh, Leslie Keen and Ralph Blumenthal picking up on it in the New York Times and the Times willing to publish it, that's huge. This this world-changing. We're too busy with COVID and politics right now to really get our heads around it, but the world has changed, and these people changed it, and it's going to change more. Victor, final no, final I, question? I, I, no, I think you're right, Whitley, because the whole change that's coming about with respect to what's come before us, and then you've been a pivotal um, I guess, uh, uh, how, how can I put it, announcer, uh, a provocateur of all this information that really has not been necessarily well digested by the general public. But now it's all coming forward with what the Pentagon and what the U.S. Navy has brought forward. And, you know, Senator Arubio uh, bringing forward this information with UAPs in, 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 a, in a legislative document. Everything seems to be coming forward to prospect the reality that this thing needs to be talked about. This has to be a narrative for the human species. And if we deny it, we will be denying our own existence. But if we move forward, we will be enlightened by it, for lack of a better word. So the the political situation that's going on right now is very significant. How do you respond to all of that, the geopolitics of this? Well, I, I'm not so sure that the government has all that much that it can release, that it has access to it. When I was young, um, one of my uncles was involved in the Roswell incident, and his commanding officer, General Arthur Exon, 
who became commanding officer at Wright Pat and was involved also in the Roswell incident told me that a lot of the material was so secret that they didn't write anything down and that all of the data from Roswell, everything had been destroyed. And then along came Congressman Schiff, Stephen Schiff, some years later, and he asked the GAO, the General Accounting Office, to find out what happened and to get the data from Roswell. And it turned out it had been, they found out that all of the the output of records from Roswell had been illegally destroyed. And I told Congressman Schiff that's what he would find out, and it was. So I don't know that we 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 have much to to release. I hope there's more than I think, but I'm afraid a lot of that material has been destroyed. And I think it's unfortunate because we need to quit starting always at ground zero. I mean, this conversation of disclosure has been going on for 70 years. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Gentlemen, I've got to, uh, I've got to wrap it up there, but uh, thank you so much, Whitley, for, for being so generous with your time. A New World, available wherever uh, good books are sold, available on Amazon and the website unknowncountry.com. Thank you so much, Whitley. Thank you. Victor, always a pleasure. Thank you, my friend. And uh, Zeland Communications, how do we read? Uh, how do we reach your blogs? Just go to zelandcommunications.com and you'll find out all the really good stuff with press releases and lots of other information. Thanks a lot, Richard. It's all been right, a pal. pleasure. Thank you. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats, we need. We need constant petting. <laughs> <laughs>